0: You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Today, I'm going to begin a new series on the millennium what it is and why it matters. So we're gonna be getting, going into some some depth here in this series. You know, why is this important? Now some have discussed the millennium of course in in our studio electives and even in the magazine and everything too. They've done a great job, but I wanna revisit a few things and kind of expand on some of this and also explain why these things are important for us today. But first, I have to ask a question. What is the millennium? So let me ask you. If somebody asked you what is the millennium, what would you say? That thousand years. reign. Reign of Christ on earth. What else? Second coming, I'm oh, sorry? The kingdom. Anybody else? Anything else? Yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected. It is that and we'll see so much more. And really put simply, The millennium is the literal view of Christ physically reigning or ruling for a 1,000 years from Jerusalem over the earth. We also know Satan is bound, and he won't be released until the end of that time. But this is also known as the kingdom, the kingdom age, the messianic age, that's the way it is within Jewish thought and of course in some uh, views within Christianity. Now there's a variety of things that will occur during this time. And a lot of people say, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And that's kind of what I want to tackle in this series. And we're going to look at each one as much as we can. But we also want to make sure we start with Scripture. Now, where is it based in? Well, it's based in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. So we'll go ahead and read that text now. Of course, this is the part of the, the vision of John. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. You see, I'm highlighting this as we go along, by the way. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a 1,000 years, when the 1,000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore and they came up out of the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So these are the verses for the millennium, the kingdom or the kingdom age. And it does tell us some things that will take place during this time. But we also need to recognize that historically, there are different views on the millennium. So I wanna cover that just for a few moments. Now, just to find it, and reread the verses, but there's primarily three different views when it comes to the millennium, or quote, the kingdom. And of course, your view of the millennium is gonna be connected to your view of when Christ is going to return and why. So that's, that's part of it. But I just wanna briefly mention these to you. First of all is amillennialism. Anybody ever heard of this? Yeah, yeah. This is the view that basically says it's not gonna happen. Physically. The A in front of millennium is a negation in the Greek. So millennium, amillennium, it means "Eh, not gonna happen. So amillennium is a denial of the literal 1,000 physical year reign of Jesus from Jerusalem. You say well what do they do? Well they actually spiritualize the text. They spiritualize those years, they say well they're not literal, Uh, they're a figure of speech, and most who hold this view say that we're actually in the millennium today believe it or not. Now, this is the most prominent view within the, quote, church in the world, believe it or not. And this is within general, again, quote, Christian groups. Now, when I say general view of Christian groups, I I use that as a general term because the driving force behind this view historically has been Catholicism. Because those within this view, and and this is the view that Catholicism holds, and it was passed down to those in the the Reformed faith. The Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, still embraced this and held to it at least some form of it and then brought it into the Protestant church in the early Reformation. So it's still very prominent today in Europe and in many pockets in America today. Now, they may not say it this way, but they say that the kingdom ages today and Christ is ruling in our hearts. That's how they would define it and describe it. Now, I'll talk some about that in a little while, but I just wanna define these terms uh, in a summary form. The application is this. Jesus is to rule in our hearts and lives. We don't deny that as believers. That is true. But this view goes beyond what Scripture says and applies it to everything. It actually twists the historical, grammatical, and cultural, and even Jewish interpretation of the Bible. It also denies that Israel has a role in the future. Now, we know that none of us gets everything right, and grace should be extended, but we have to understand that a wrong interpretation will always lead to a wrong application, and that's the case with this view. But there are genuine believers who embrace it, who we should talk to, and Try and, by the grace of God, to show them uh, the other views. Second, premillennialism. How many have heard of this? Has heard of this? Yeah, most of us have. This is the view that says Jesus will return before the thousand years and set up his literal kingdom, which is the thousand years. This is a view I hold and the view that Zion's hope holds as well. And this is the most prominent view within evangelical churches in America, primarily, with pockets in other places in the world. Now, there was actually a resurgence of this after World War II. Well, why was that? Well, because World War II and World War I changed a lot of things in the world. And along with that, there was a resurgence of the focus on the nation of Israel when they became a nation. So these two kind of kind of went together hand in glove, which is quite interesting when you look at it, and how God orchestrated those events. Third, post-millennialism. How many of you have ever heard of this? You guys ever heard of this? Yeah, most of you here. So I'm just kind of, kind of reviewing to set up what we're gonna be looking at. And this view states the church is going to bring in the millennium or the kingdom. Boy, we're doing a bang up job today, aren't we? Or this time of peace and prosperity. How through the preaching of the gospel where the culture becomes better and better. They state Jesus will turn after this thousand years, thus the name post-millennium. Now, we need to recognize, again, historically, this was the most prominent view in the 1800s and the early 1900s within the church. It was embraced by many, and it did lead to some great evangelistic zeal. Most of the missionary activity was because of this view at that time. You know, so it doesn't make it right, but that is something that we have to understand and recognize, but again, this view has dwindled after two world wars. Now there's still some who hold to it, and some you know, pretty strongly, but it, it, it can't be true, it's not true, it's wrong. Also too, within the early church, prior to 300 AD, most did believe and embrace a literal 1,000 year rule of Christ on earth. This was called the chiliastic or Chiliasm or chiliism view. Now they use different wording obviously, But most of the church did hold to this or a form of this until the time of Origen and Augustine. That's when the view changed. That's when the view of the kingdom switched from a literal view to a spiritualized view where they stepped away from it being literally on the earth and stepped into a spiritualized view of the kingdom or the millennium. So I, I wanted to mention that because I did a message on a part three of what is the kingdom. You can find that on YouTube. And I talk about how this change took place historically and how it actually came back to a literal historical rule from earth. And I also did a, a message on what the early church fathers uh, believed about end times. And again, you can find that on YouTube as well. Next question Why is the millennium important? You ever thought of that? You know. When we study the end times, when we study the scriptures, when we turn the word Christ and more, we we know it's interesting. I mean, what is more popular than talking about the second coming of Christ? I mean, I I do the social media for Zion's Hope. I I know which posts get the most hits. (laughs) And it's about the second coming. It's about the rapture and things like that. And that's fine. But I want to remind us there's a lot more to Christianity than that, too. But it's a topic we want to learn more about. And we should. And it's good to learn these things, but have you ever asked, asked this question, why is this important? Why do I really want to learn about this, just, rather than just to, to intellectually understand it? Or why do I want to know it when, maybe just you know, other than to defend my position? Now we want to defend our position, of course, but we want to know about end times, and we want to know why we believe it, but why? How does that impact our life today? That's what we need to ask. So we need to go deeper when it comes to every biblical topic and of course the topic of end times and that brings again the question why even study the millennium? That's in the future. (laughs) We'll see it. We'll be there. Why is it important? You know, if it's something that's going to happen in the future, how is that going to impact my life today? It should. It should. And these kinds of questions, by the way, should be asked for anything we study any biblical topic including the millennium so let me ask you why is the millennium important first it's in the bible anything in the bible is important any biblical topic is important second it's important for the nation of israel and of course i would say it's also important for the church too but It's important mainly for the nation of Israel, which we'll see. So as we study the kingdom, the millennium, we can learn, we can grow, we can put together the pieces of the Bible and we also learn how the Bible fits together, which is another reason to study it. Because it puts you into the text, I mean, more than you'll ever really think. Because there's so much in there about what's gonna happen. And of course, there's things we don't know. So it's for doctrine, it's for practice, and that includes the millennium too. We want to study it. Now the big one. So that's all the introduction. So what will happen during the millennium? That is the question of the hour. Now for me, one reason I believe in a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ because of the biblical text stating it very clearly as we read in Revelation is that there are numerous things the Bible says that will take place. But they haven't happened yet. So what's gonna happen? Well, before I get to that, I wanna say a few things. We do have to admit that there are a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of details we don't know, and that's fine. You know, there's tidbits in the prophets which we'll look at in the gospels, other places, that do give us hints of what's gonna occur, and some things are very specific too, but we have to admit we don't have all the answers. You know what, if you're a Christian and somebody asked you a question, It's okay to say I don't know. (laughs) But I'll find out and then we can chat later. Only God has all the answers, we don't. And we also wanna be careful of too much speculation However, Scripture does speak of what will happen again to a point, and that's what we're going to be covering. And I want to also focus on why this 1,000 years of millennium or kingdom is important, and again, what will occur during that time. Now, I want to warn you ahead of time, we are going to be looking at a lot of Bible verses, okay? We're going to be reading a lot of Scripture. I will explain some, summarize some, and kind of skim over some others just because of time and because of emphasis and things like that. And some of the verses you'll see more than once in the series, by the way. And my goal is to give you a sense of the meaning and encourage you to study more on this topic because of course I can't cover everything. But here's the first thing that's gonna happen in the millennium. And I think probably the most important thing Jesus will physically rule from Jerusalem. Now, this is in part based upon the Davidic covenant. Now, I did cover the covenants previously. I'm not going to restate everything, (laughs) not all the details. But I do want to read the verses from 2 Samuel 7 just to set up the context and for those who were not in that study. So, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, this is a Davidic covenant that God made with David. Now, then. This is what you, of course the prophet Nathan, shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies said. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a leader over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will establish a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will malicious people oppress them anymore as previously, even from the day that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. Remember, this was a transition from the judges into the kings as well. Saul was a king, of course, he fell miserably, but this was still a transitional period in some sense. Continuing on, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that, to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. God said, no, you can't do it. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the strokes of mankind. But my favor will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow. Now, I do want to say a caveat here when it comes to this promise, because there are other texts that are connected to it. And there are those who will say that when the kings were constantly rebellious against God, and you can read in your First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, that this covenant was no longer in place, that it was actually annulled. There are those who will say that, it's something like that. But that's not what the text actually says when you read it. And again, even connected to other verses. And yes, the kings were required to be faithful to the Mosaic Law, we know that. But it doesn't say they were, if they were unfaithful that God was going to disannul or void this promise when it was unconditional. They needed to be faithful to do what? To physically sit upon the throne in Israel. And that's something that a lot of people miss. Because if you miss that, then you're gonna really miss the point of the Davidic covenant. And regardless of what they did or didn't do, God says, I'm gonna keep my promise through these kingly individuals until Messiah comes. Because that was part of the promise. And we know Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Because at the time of Christ, Jesus was in the lineage of King David. So he would have been king. Now, there's two aspects of this covenant I just want to summarize and address real quick here. Again, it's an unconditional covenant that God made with David. David could do nothing for it or to destroy it, and those after him too. Nothing to keep it or to disannul it. First of all, God said this. He's going to provide a place for his people to live in peace. Okay? Make sense? Okay. Second, David's throne would be established forever. Now let me ask you: did David sit upon a literal throne? Yes, yes. it's not a trick question. No it's not a trick question. I mean, it, He was a king. He was in Jerusalem. That's where,, you know, he, he ruled from. His throne was a physical throne. You know, again, this is not a trick question. <laughs> but I do want to ask a few questions prior to getting into some other things. First of all. Did God provide a place for his people under Solomon? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I mean, it was the, the time, the golden age of Israel under David and then Solomon. We don't deny that. We're not denying that or dismissing that at all. Next question. Was there a time of peace under Solomon? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, his name means peace. Shlomo. Shalom. It, it's peace. Now, towards the end of his reign, that Stopped when God rose up enemies against him when Solomon turned away from the Lord. Here's another one. Where were the people living under that short time of peace? Where? Israel. 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 Again, it's not a trick question. You know, just, I know it's still kinda early, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe the coffee is gonna start to kick in pretty soon. <laughs> um, it, 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 they lived in Israel. So there was an immediate fulfillment under Solomon. And God's very clear on that. But he sinned and God did not allow that peace to continue. What happened after Solomon died? What happened to the kingdom? It split. It divided. And of course, there was a lot of turmoil and problems. and, and You can read about that again. In, in, I'm, I'm teaching through the, the Old Testament historical books, which is why this is still kind of fresh in my mind. So that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment under Solomon. It could not have been. It was not. So, we have to remember also, they don't have rest today. They had a temporary time. There was a time of peace under Solomon. But ever since then, the Jews have been disturbed by Gentile nations. Remember the book of Daniel? And it continues to this day. God has yet to ultimately fulfill his unconditional promise to David and to the nation. Within the millennium or the kingdom, God will give Israel peace in the land. Do they have peace today? No. They have safety today? No, they don't. They're surrounded by nations who want them wiped off the face of the earth. It doesn't sound like a peaceful place to live. It's a wonderful place, of course. Many of you have been there but they don't have peace, not only externally, but even within the country. There's still struggles there too. So within the millennium of the kingdom, God will give them peace. Well, how's he gonna do that? Well, that in part is based upon the second statement of this, that David's throne will be established forever. Well, again, many kings did sit on the throne of Judah, some of them good, most of them not so good, Jesus was and is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant who will fulfill all those promises in the millennium as he rules from Jerusalem. Well, how do we know this? Michael, you're asserting things, how do you know it? Well, let's start looking at some biblical texts. First of all, Psalm two, a Psalm of David. This is uh, God speaking, verses six through nine, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That is pretty clear. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have fathered you or begotten you. Ask it of me and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is a messianic psalm that states the Messiah will physically rule from Zion. Now what is another another name for Zion? Jerusalem. Jerusalem with a rod of iron. Now what does that mean? That means you do what he says or else. Yeah, I'll pop you on the head and more. The Bible gives this imagery used in other places that we'll see regarding the rule of Christ in the kingdom. So if Jesus is ruling in my heart, is he ruling me with a rod of iron? No. Now does he discipline me? Yeah, as needed. This is talking about the nations, not talking about me. Next, Psalm 10. Just look at a few verses here, verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. The Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from... Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now to verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings in in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He'll fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. As far as I can tell, God's not filling the world with corpses right now in this sense. This again is another messianic psalm, and Psalm 10 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. In fact. The Lord says to my Lord, make sit at my right hand is the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. But if you read the rest of the Psalm, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that within the cultural Jewish context at the time, which would have been required in the New Testament, it says a lot about the Messiah ruling over not just Israel, but his enemies. So Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, again Psalm two, from Jerusalem, But it's very interesting, when you put these two together, the emphasis is not Israel, it's not Jerusalem, even though that's where he will rule from. Huh, so let me ask you, what is the emphasis of these two Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110? To whom does it refer that he's gonna rule over? The world, which to a Jewish mind is what? The Gentile nations. So we have when a Jew rules the world. So this is, this is critical when it comes to this. The Jewish Messiah will rule from Jerusalem over Israel, that's easy to establish, but also the Gentile nations. Next, Zechariah 8 verses one and two. Then the word of the Lord of armies came, saying, The Lord of armies says this, I am exceedingly zealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am zealous or jealous for her. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, just in case you're wondering. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of armies will be called the holy mountain. Wow. Has this happened? I mean, would we call Jerusalem the city of truth today? No by far, they've rejected the Messiah. For the amillennialists though, this text poses a big problem because it's very specific, very direct. It has nothing to do with the church. This is Zion, this is Jerusalem, this is Israel. And to make it about the church not only rips it out of its context, but it perverts the text. He will return there and he will dwell there. That's what he says. Then, that's a timing word, Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. This will only occur when Jesus returns and rules from Jerusalem, for that is the only way it could be the city of truth, when the person of truth is sitting there on the throne. I wanna talk about truth for a minute, though. We know that truth itself is under attack in our world. Your truth, my truth, what is truth, we don't need truth, blah, 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 blah. Objective truth, eh, subjective, oh, that's what I feel, that's what I want. That's the world we live in. We need to be ready as believers to say there is objective truth found in the word of God and be ready to stand for it and be ready to be hated for it. When you tell our kids and our grandkids about that too, now whether they listen or not, that's another matter. But we need to be people of truth as Christians. We should be known for being truthful, honest, individuals with integrity, whether we're in business, whether we're in uh, ministry, whether we're just regular people, we should be people of truth. We should not buy into the lies of the world or the media and there are many. We should be loving in our proclamation of the truth and also of living out that truth. We should be full of grace and truth like Jesus but we need to know the truth in order to live it out and to share with others. So do we know the truth of the word of God? Are we grounded in the faith? Are we able to say this is what the Bible says about this doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine, and this doctrine? Say, well, I'm a little shaky on a few things. Get some training. Go to a class at your church. Go online, find some good resources. Get foundational truth for your life so that you can be grounded and not be shaken when your Bibles are taken away and when they put a gun to your head. More and more as we draw closer to the return of Christ, the body of Christ must be people of truth. And part of the truth is this, and it's unfortunate, but historically, we need to recognize this. Amillennialism and anti-Semitism have gone together Now, I'm not saying this is categorically always the case with somebody who holds a view. That's not not what I'm saying. I'm saying historically they are connected and that is the truth. And we need to be aware of that. So we looked at the Davidic covenant. That was the foundation for the references in the Old Testament that I read. But I want to come back to it again. But this time in the New Testament, in Luke chapter one. I want to remind you God promised to build David a house that is a, a household legacy and reserve a king to be on the throne forever. How long is forever, by the way? Forever. That's kind of a long time, isn't it? Yeah. It's always and always, yes. In Luke 1, we see the announcement of the birth of Christ and John the Baptist by angels. But I want to read a few verses here from Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, that's Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now we read this all the time at Christmas, and rightly so, but look at it from the Davidic covenant point of view. He, that is Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the Davidic covenant right here in Luke 1. The kingdom will have no end. So, this angel comes and says that the Father's gonna give the Son the throne of David. So again, this in part is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. We have to be honest, Acts chapter two does talk about that which Peter mentions. Well, why is that? Well, because a dead king can't rule. It's pretty obvious. I mean, that's not really rocket science, you know. A dead king can't rule, only a living king can rule and it is also, again, as I mentioned, connected to the Davidic Covenant given 1,000 years or so prior to the birth of Christ. And the angel said that Jesus the Messiah will be given the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, in this context, it's referring to all of Israel. So, what does that mean? In order for Jesus to rule over Israel on the throne of his father David, from where does he need to rule from? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Again, this, I'm, I'm not trying to make this complicated. He must sit on a literal throne. He must sit on a physical throne as his father David sat on a literal physical throne. That's why I was mentioning that earlier. Well, that's nice, but what about other things? Well, just, just, you don't believe me? Believe the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will what? Sit on the throne of his glory. This is not the throne of my heart or your heart. This is the throne where he will sit. When Christ returns at his second coming with his glory and the angels, then, again, another timing word, he will sit upon the throne. Now those who say Jesus returned in 70 AD, preterism, amillennialism, This text again among others must be spiritualized. But where were all the angels in 70 AD? Uh, Where was the actual throne that Jesus sat on in 70 AD? If he came to sit on a throne, where was it? He came, in in their mind, they came to destroy Jerusalem, not to sit on the throne. Again, it doesn't fit. Again, we have to just think about this logically here. But if we take Jesus at his word, as well as the rest of scripture in its normal, natural sense, in which the Jews of that day would have understood it, Jesus is referring here to a literal throne. That's why in Acts 1, Jesus, are you not going to return the the glory to Israel? Wait, disciples, the time is not yet. He didn't say, no, 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 I'm going to come back spiritually. That's not what he told them. He says, the Father said that. It's not for you to know when it's gonna happen. In the meantime, do what I tell you to do. Which he says the same thing to us too, by the way. It has to be a throne, it has to be David's throne. And now, mentioned in Acts one, we have the ascension of Jesus, which I just mentioned, but what did the angels say about Christ's return? Let's look at this, Acts one, verses 10 and 11. And as they were gazing intently into the sky where he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, I, can just, I just want to pause. I can just imagine they're up here like this and these angels kind of, kind of like looking at him like, what, what, I mean, what are you looking at, guys? I mean, uh, I mean, he's gone. <laughs> they were expecting him to return. We understand that. But I just, it, it's, that's my weird sense of humor. Two men and white stood in clue beside them and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Let me ask you this. What does this mean, the same way? What does that mean? It's going to come down, okay. Physically, right, okay. What else? Visibly, right, what else? Bodily, tangibly, yeah, what else? Does this mean spiritually? No, it doesn't. It cannot mean that. The same way. It, see, these little phrases like this in the Bible sometimes really can help us answer a lot of questions. It's, we'll come in the same way. I mean, that, that answers a lot of stuff. And this is from an angel Is talking to the disciples as you watched him go. He's gonna come back the same way. Now, this took place, of course, on the Mount of Olives. I got a picture over here. And uh, obviously, you know, all these things weren't there during the time of Christ. <laughs> there was no university up there or anything. Nor was there this horrible... Dome of the Rock there, and the or the Al-Aqsa Mosque, rather. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, yeah. Dome of the Rock wasn't there either, so. But this is where it took place. He will return to the Mount of Olives also. Remember, it's gonna split in two. So not just going and seeing, but the same location is where he's gonna come back to as well. Now there's different views on the, you know, when he's gonna come back to that point and other things, I'm not going to cover that right now. Because it is from here he will return, or from Jerusalem, just across that Kidron Valley, he's going to rule. Now, I did not mention also that he's going to rule the Gentiles with a rod of iron. I want to show you two more references in the book of Revelation that actually state that. Again, this means he must rule literally, physically from Jerusalem on the throne of his father, David. So, Revelation. First of all, Revelation 12.5, and she, that's the nation of Israel, gave birth to a son, a male who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Again, it's very clear. And her child was caught up to God and into his throne. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so so with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So again, it's very clear. The only way That Jesus can rule the Gentile nations with a rod of iron as if He is physically present. I mean, there's really no threat when you call your kids or talk to your grandkids on the phone or through social media. You better do what I'm going to say, or I'm going to get you. Well, you're not even here. I mean, now if they respect you, of course they'll do what you say. Hopefully, you know. But there's going to be a big threat when Jesus is physically ruling, and if you mess up, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. He must be physically present. Again, where will that throne be? Jerusalem. We cannot spiritualize this and say, well, he's ruling the nations right now through the church or something like that. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Please understand what I'm getting ready to say. If Jesus is now ruling the nations from the church, he's not doing a very good job. Think about that. His rule will be much better than what's going on right now. All the corruption's gonna be gone. You know, that, that, that idea just makes no sense when you spiritualize a text. Now, a few things. Is Jesus on his throne in heaven now? Yeah. Yeah, we don't deny that. Does he rule the world? Does he have authority over the world? Yes, of course, he's God. But these are not the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Nor what the prophets said. What, it do, what does it mean? Let me ask you this. What does it mean if Jesus doesn't sit on the physical throne of David and rule from Jerusalem. It means God is a liar and we cannot depend upon the word of God. That is what is at stake when it comes to this. The reliability of the Bible and the character of God. So I don't believe this is an isolated incident, you know, a secondary little thing. Well, if you want to spiritualize all that stuff, you can. This is more serious than that. So if you're here, if you're watching, and if you're spiritualizing the text, you need to really reevaluate some things that you hold to. And we've systematically given an overview of some of the verses in the Old and New Testament that refer to a physical, literal throne where Jesus will sit in the kingdom in the millennium. More could be said. But when God spoke to David and others about God's kingdom, he was referring to a physical, literal kingdom, not a spiritualized kingdom. Now, many Christians, even denominations and churches today do not think this way. And they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't deny that. And some of them have not been confronted with the truth. Others have been confronted. And because of their loyalty to a tradition or because they, they don't reconsider what they've been taught, they will reject this. So be ready for that. But the thing is they reject it without realizing the cost of it. They don't recognize the implications of their beliefs. Do you realize your beliefs have consequences and implications? Everything. What we believe about one thing is going to impact what we do in other areas. Today in Christ we have the spiritual blessings that God promised. Promises even the blessings of the kingdom. Forgiveness. Right relationship with God and more. His righteousness given to us by faith. But... We are not in the kingdom, we're not in the millennium. If we are, (laughs) I'm ready for it to end. (laughs) So, this completes the first topic in the series. I have about 17 more. (laughs) Now there's not gonna be 17 more classes on on this, just to (laughs) let you know. But I wanted to set this one up with, I believe, the first core foundational truth that really is critical when it comes to the millennium, when it comes to the kingdom. Jesus will physically rule from Jerusalem on a throne that belonged to his father, David. And I wanna see how, show you how important these are for the future, but also for today. So I've got some applications I wanna finish up. First of all, much of what I've talked about is connected to the way you interpret the Bible, the way you view the Bible. You know, we and I interpret as as best as we can in the historical, grammatical, uh, cultural, Jewish, face value context of scripture. Now, a lot of people will claim that and and some do a better job than I do at it. And we know there's figures of speech, we know there's poetry and prophecy and all this other stuff in the scriptures. But to spiritualize literal text is very problematic. But I want to say this too, even we as futurists need to be careful Because sometimes we do the same thing with texts that shouldn't be spiritualized. We need to be careful. So we can accuse one group of doing it but we're also guilty of doing it ourselves. So my encouragement to you is learn how to interpret the Bible. I did a whole series on that. Critical to understand these days. Second, God promised many things to Israel that he will fulfill. He has promised to do this. But he's also promised us some things too. As Christians do we know his promises do we hold on to his promises during the difficulties of life well what are some of those well God promises he will be with us in the hard times he also promises that there will be hard times in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world God promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to provide for our needs within the context of giving there in Philippians, by the way. He also promises to comfort you when you don't understand. He also promises to confront you when you're sinning. Now these things can be hard sometimes. But he's teaching us in the difficulties and the blessings to walk by faith and not by sight and when it comes to topics like this we can gain some understanding but there's still stuff we don't understand now as we finish up I do want to ask a simple question who's ruling your life today is it Jesus or is it you or someone else Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode.